Romans 4, 23 through 25. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our, for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. We love looking at the scripture from different angles. Sometimes we take big chunks of passages at a time, multiple chapters, lots of paragraphs, and sometimes it's good to, to view it from a different angle and to go a little bit slower and to take just a few verses, and that's what we are doing this morning. Uh, would you join me in prayer as we prepare to hear from, from these verses? Father, we can lift up our eyes and, and put them on you and know that you are the one from whom our help comes. Would you help us during this time to rightly hear your word, to receive what we need to receive, and then to live it out before your face and for your glory. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. So says Tim Keller, only a fraction. He goes on to say that many have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, the doctrine of the justifying work of Christ in their lives. But in their day-to-day -day existence, they rely on their sanctification for justification, drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. And I wonder if he's right, and if that is true for us, if only a fraction of this present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating, living in light of, living out, the justifying work of Christ in, our, Christ in our own lives. My concern is that maybe he's correct. Do, do many of us have only a theoretical commitment to that justifying work of Christ in our own lives? Or a real commitment? Are only a fraction of us living in the reality of the doctrine of justification by faith alone? And starting in chapter 3, verse 21, the, the but now time, where Paul turns from, from leveling everybody and saying that they're all sinful, there's not one righteous, he, he moves them to, to speaking and thoroughly explaining and exploring the, the justification, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, we've heard now in, from chapter 3, verse 21, all the way now through Romans chapter 4, we've heard of that doctrine. He's explained it. We've heard of the nature of faith, and we saw the example of Abraham and how it undergirds all of these things, not only the doctrine, but also the nature of faith itself. And, and I got to ask the question, as all those things that we've seen from chapter 3, verse 21, all the way down to chapter 4, where we are this morning, do those things matter on Monday? Or Tuesday? Have those things mattered on, on Friday and Saturday? Or do we slip into thinking that somehow our performance 
affects our standing with God? Or do we draw assurance of our acceptance and belonging before God from the empty well of the purity of our faith, the strength of our faith, the intensity of our faith, or some past experience of religious uh, life? And with all those questions in mind, we get to conclude chapter 4 as Paul drops in these concluding thoughts from all that he's explained about the doctrine and nature of faith. He says these verses at the end of chapter 4 to help readers to know that their justification, their right standing before God, their righteousness before a holy God is based on their faith in Jesus alone. The one who was delivered up for their trespasses and raised for their justification. As we end chapter 4, Paul concludes. He, he gives us all these thoughts and he concludes kind of in three ways here. He, he tells of words written for us, which means that faith can be counted for us because Jesus was delivered up and raised for us. Words written for us. Faith counted for us because Jesus was delivered and raised for us. There are words here that are written for us that were written long ago. Okay, and so in verse 23, he repeats those words. The words, it was counted to him, quotes Genesis 15, 6 again, were not written for his sake alone. Now, he quoted those words in chapter 4, verse 3, and I think what he's doing is that he's kind of bracketed off the section of Scripture, right? He's, he's bracketed off a, a big chunk of chapter 4. So from verse 3 all the way down to verse 23, there's this bracket placed around that, and he says these words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. He brackets this section, and he draws the conclusion. From those words, he says, those were written for our sake also. Paul, this, this man who's writing, inspired by the Spirit, carried along by the Spirit, looks back at Scripture, looks back at Genesis, written thousands of years before his time, and he says, that was written for our sake too. Our sake. And he says ours, and he, he knows in chapter 1, verse 7, here's who he's writing to. He's speaking of himself. It was written for his sake and to all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints. It was written for Paul. And all of those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, I think we could say that this was written for the sake of then believers, right? Paul looks back at something written thousands of years before and says, God intended us in the midst of that. My grandmother, she wrote kind of a daily, I don't know, journal. And she just write things that she did during the day before she died. And, like, she got into the thunder late in her life, and she'd write, you know, thunder one, score, just stuff like that. And when she died, I got to see some of these, these journals, and most of them were just like that. Man, thunder died, but there were a few that I knew, like, hey, I saw her on that day. I wonder if she wrote anything. And so it's, it's, it was uh, so fun to be able to look back and say, oh, visited Dylan and his family that day. Like, such a sweet family. I, I just, those words touched me so much when I read them. Like, I, I look back and I can say, like, man, she didn't know I was ever going to read this. She never wrote those things for my sake. She had no intention that I was going to read those any time in my life. And yet they were so touching to me that, that 
after the fact, and maybe some of those entries years later, I'm reading them and I'm reading these kind words that she said. It was so touching that I found myself in her journals in previous years before her death. And Christian, your father in heaven had your sake in mind all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. Like thousands of years ago, God had your sake in mind also to those words that he spoke to Abraham. The the Old Testament was written then, we could say, not just for the benefit of the people at that time, although that's true as well, but also for Christians who would come years later. So when Paul says what he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16, that all scripture is inspired, it's breathed out by God, and it's profitable. All of it is profitable for teaching, for training, for correction, for reproof. All of it is profitable. He, he has these kind of things in mind. He has Genesis 15 in mind. He says, oh, that was written for Abraham, but our sake also that we might know those same truths that Abraham knew. He has those kind of texts in mind that benefits, that is for the sake of Christians today. God intended Genesis 15 then to be read, to be understood, to be known, not just for Abraham's sake, not to be understood just for Abraham and his family, but to be understood by Paul and for the benefit of Christians that would come after him. That that is astounding. It's written for all who share not just the, the words with Abraham, but the faith of Abraham. What an astounding thought that is Abraham in Genesis 15, he looks up into the night sky and he sees all those stars and he tries to count them as he's thinking on the promises of God. As Abraham looked up into those stars, he couldn't count them. He didn't know what was going on, but God had a face and a name in mind with each one of those stars. What an astounding thought. So we can look back and we can read and say, God, if I, if I have the same faith as Abraham, God actually had my sake in mind when he wrote Genesis 15, 6. Now what this doesn't do is, is we don't want to get skewed in how we read the scripture, right? It doesn't, doesn't say that now we can put ourselves in the center of the scripture and, and we interpret everything through this lens that God is writing solely for me. As if we're looking for ourselves everywhere now, like, oh, I saw myself in Genesis 15, 6. So now I need to find myself in every scripture all over the, the Bible. As if we're like the, the where's Waldo? It's like there's lots going on in this picture. Where am I at in, in Genesis and then Leviticus and then Ezekiel? Like I got to find myself in there. That's not what we should do. But Paul does show us something, right? He shows us something of how to read the scripture. Read the Old Testament in light of the the New Testament. We read the Old Testament in light of the person work of Jesus with the right goal and the right method. And so a few authors help us, I think, when they say that the most important thing is to have the correct goal of interpretation. And for the New Testament writers, the goal was Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. And the most basic methodological Consideration, therefore, was to see how the Old Testament spoke of Jesus, how it spoke of Jesus' person and work, and the life of his people that would grow out of it. So we're looking back and we're trying to find Jesus everywhere because all of it is, is pointing to him in some form or fashion. Every part of Scripture is whispering his name. So we're looking back in light of what he has done. How is he the fulfillment? How has he made this uh, come to fruition in a way that, that now is taken on a different life than maybe what they even imagined in the Old Testament. And then that we do is that we see, like, what kind of life has that brought from him, right? So we're not looking for ourselves in the where's Waldo. We're looking for Christ, and he's the focal point everywhere. And then from him, then we can find 
us if we have our faith in him. And so we read the Old Testament and we want to grasp what it meant for that original audience, what it would have, how it would have impacted them, how they could have applied it. But we don't want to read it in isolation of the entire lens of scripture. We don't want to read texts in isolation from the lens of the gospel. We get to look back through the person work of Jesus and read those things. And we do that. We read them rightly. We look back through the lens of Christ. And we see how every text points to him and and what it means or what it will mean for God's people. How how those, that life of God's people grows out of him. There's a for our sake when reading the scripture because of what Jesus has done. Because of his life, death, and resurrection. Because he's the yes and amen to all of God's promises. And those who are united to him then can read the scripture and say, there's something for our sake in this as well. There are words that are written for others that are written for us. Because of God's gracious intentionality. Words written for us that say, it was counted to him. That wasn't just for his sake alone. It's for ours. So there were words written for us. And because there were, that means that that this faith can be counted for us as well. That's how it's for our sake. And so that's what he says in verse 24. There were words, it was counted to him. We're not written for his sake, Abraham's sake alone. But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him. Who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Paul's explaining, all right, here's how these words were also written for our sake. Because he says, it will be counted for us who also believe. As it was counted for Abraham, it will also be counted for us. It's those who believe who will be counted as Abraham, counted righteous before God. So he's asserting again in this, in this repetition of these words that he brackets off the section with, he's asserting again that, that one is justified, one has right standing, one has righteousness from God based on their faith alone. Now I wonder today if there are things that you never tire of hearing. That, like maybe it's, you know, it's holiday season, maybe there's a few Christmas songs, like I could listen to that every year, or maybe all year, like that B.C. Clark jingle, maybe you love that, and you never get tired of it. Maybe it's a school fight song, where you just, man, I love it, and it's always associated, like we're scoring touchdowns, or we're making baskets, and then they play the song, we're winning games, and like, so I never tire of hearing that. Now, I looked actually on my Spotify playlist, and the oldest song that I have liked on there is, is probably a song I never tire of hearing. It's A Mighty Fortress, and it's the, the, the musical rendition that we sing here. And so I'm like, that, I couldn't, I'll never tire of that song. The, the words, the, the music, the beauty of it, but I, I think like, man, I, I'll never tire of hearing Sojourners sing A Mighty Fortress. Like, I feel like the roof's going to come off. Like, like, no, our kingdom isn't forever, but his is, and, and we're thrilled about it. Like, we're, we're looking to him. Like, he's, if, it's on, if it's on us, we're not going to do it. But our own strength, uh, we don't confide in that. We confide in the one whose kingdom is forever. And I, I, could, I never get tired of that. I could listen to it all the time. And justification by faith alone is, is one of those things, one of the doctrines, one of those words, some of those words that we as Christians ought to never tire of hearing. It's, it's a phrase, it's a doctrine that we should just want to wear out over and over again because it is describing to us the very heart and center of the gospel in one of martin luther's works he he uses this allegory where a king marries a prostitute and 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 as this prostitute you know what happens is if you marry someone like your your status immediately changes right the prostitute changes from one who's a prostitute, that was your status before, and now by marrying the king, your, your status is now shifted. It's now changed completely to being a queen. And what he says is that she didn't do queenly things, and, and that's not what's changed her status. 
She was a prostitute when she was married and by marriage became queen. And justification by faith is understood like that, that sinners don't then start performing righteous deeds and righteous acts and by those things become righteous before God. That's not how it works at all. They're sinners who by their faith union with Christ are counted righteous. It's through their belief in Jesus that they receive the status of justification, the righteousness from God. It comes through their faith in Jesus. And and that's what chapter 4 has been telling us. Here's the faith of chapter 4. It's faith that is apart from works, including works of the law. That's Abraham was counted before there was law, right? He was counted righteous before there was law. It's faith that is counted as righteousness before his circumcision. There's no sign and seal that then moves your status from being one who is unjustified to one who is being justified. Uh, His faith that's apart from physical descent from Abraham. It's apart from all that kind of stuff that faith is the faith that receives righteousness from God. But notice what he says in verse 24, that it's not just faith that's apart from those things. It's faith alone, but it's also the same faith in the same God as Abraham. There's a continuity that Christians have today with the, the, the work of, or with Abraham in the past. There's continuity between Abraham's faith and the Christian faith. He says, verse 24, it will be counted to us who believe in him, the same him that Abraham believed in. And so the the nature of faith is the same. It's the same faith that looks away from ourselves, looks to God, fully to God, looks away from our own efforts, our own ability, and looks fully and wholly to God. And the object of the faith is the same. This is the God who who is going to fulfill promises, even a God who raises the dead. And you're thinking, well, wait a second. I don't know if Abraham's faith connects with ours there, but look in verses 17 through 19. Abraham... He believes in this God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And in verse 18, it says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So what he is looking to God to do is to bring life where there's only death. And so in a sense, like we are sharing this same faith as Abraham there, but there's also some points of discontinuity with Abraham. Hey, Abraham looked forward to these promises being fulfilled in ways that he didn't know the specific content of, and that's not true for us today. Look at verse 24. It's counted to us who believe in him who does what? Who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. The nature of faith is the same. The object of faith is the same, but something unique has happened. In chapter 3, Verse 21 and 22, after Paul has been saying that we're all under the wrath of God, that there's no one righteous, not even one, he says, but now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That but now is a but now shift of redemptive history is now shift. Salvation history is now lurched forward in the person and work of Jesus. And this is a new time. He writes of the but now time where fulfillment has come in the person and work of Jesus that was not true of Abraham's time. So there's been a salvation historical shift that promises that were made are now promises in the person and work of Jesus that have been kept. That promises that were concealed have now been revealed. Where 
Abraham had this forward-looking faith. We now have this backward-looking faith at the person and work of Jesus. I, I like how one commentator says that it was promise that loomed on Abraham's horizon. It is an accomplishment that is in focal in our purview. The full panorama of redemptive realization stretches before us to give us that specific content to our faith. All right, that's a little bit wordy and much, but I think here's the, the boiled down version from another, that the course of salvation history has filled out and made ever more clear the specific content of the promise. And that specific content is content that Abraham never had. Abraham and others who had the faith of Abraham, they had the promises, but they were on the horizon. They didn't know exactly what they looked like. They're a little bit blurry. They know they're out there. They trust in God to make them come true, but they're a little bit blurry on the horizon. But now, in light in the per of the person and work of Jesus, the, the panorama of all God had promised and kept is before us, and the focal point of this entire view is Jesus Christ himself. Amen. That means, then, to believe in the God of Abraham is to believe in the God who made promises to Abraham and kept them in Jesus. That is to say, you cannot keep the same faith and the same object of faith as Abraham if you do not believe that this is the one who raised Jesus our Lord, because the picture has been filled in for us. The specific content of Abraham's promise has come, and so one must believe, if you're going to believe in the same God, of Abraham, you have to believe that this is the God who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord. And one who does, what does he say? That faith is counted to that person as righteousness. Those words written for us, for our sake also, show that faith, the faith that Abraham had, is faith that also can be counted for us before God. So these words were written for us, and faith is counted for us, but that is only possible because of verse 25. He says of Jesus our Lord that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Church, everything rests on this right here. This is the grounds for our justification. This is the foundation for our righteousness that our Lord... That Jesus Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Delivered up. That speaks of Jesus' sacrifice, of his crucifixion, where Jesus was nailed to a tree. Notice that delivered up is a, you know, it's a passive. Like he, it was done to him, right? He was delivered up. And so you got to think, like, then who delivered Jesus? Well, in the, in the passage, it's the same him who raised him from the dead of verse 24. That, that is to say, it's God himself. And in chapter 3, verse 25, we read that the Father, God the Father, put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God put him forward. Now, I've used this before, but it's worth noting again. As one author says, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. But as it's passive, you, you might get the sense that he was just delivered up. Is, is Jesus just this kind of helpless victim in the Father's work? Is he the one that's just like, all right, all right the Father's angry with sin, and so he's going to deliver me over uh, to be uh, crucified for their sin? Is he uh, you know, receiving the cruelty of a father? And the answer, of course, is no. That we don't want to separate the Trinity here. Like, uh, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all one. Same purpose, same goal, same heart, same love. And so we see in the scripture both that the Father gave up the Son, that the Father sent the Son, and that the Son is the one who came. That the Son son is the one who also gave. So in in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus came and said, I I didn't come to, to be served, but to serve. I came to give my life. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. In John chapter 10, verse 15, he says, I lay down my life on my own accord and I can take it up again. Uh, Ephesians 5, 2 says that Christ loved us and what did he do? He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 32, it's the father who didn't spare his own son. Here it's the father who delivered him up unto death. And what we see then is the, the crucifixion, the delivering up of the, of the Son is the work of the Father, and it's the work of the Son that the Father sent, that the Son gave, that the Father gave, that, the, that Jesus himself is giving his own life, that these are working together, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit, these are one. This is the work then of, of a God who loves. He's not working in order to make something lovely. He's working from the love that he already has. So, so Luke chapter 19 Verse 10 says he came to seek and save the lost. What's he doing? He's not trying to say like, hey, I'm going to fix them up and make them lovely. No, they're lost, and I'm going to save the lost. That's what he's there to do. Or John 3.16, God loved the world, a world that's in rejection of him, that's in rebellion to him. He loved that world and sent his son into it. Or 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we love God. Not that we were lovely, not that we were doing loving things, but that he loved us and that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that love was, was demonstrated for us so clearly in his delivering up of Jesus and the cross of Christ. But he was delivered up for something. Verse 25, he was delivered up for our trespasses. For. That's the word that means because of, on on account of. On account of what? On account of our trespasses. Our trespasses. Not his. Jesus is this lamb without spot or blemish. He's completely blameless. You read the crucifixion and the story of the crucifixion, and you, you get the sense that everyone around knows that he didn't deserve this. He's the blameless one. No, he was delivered up for ours, our trespasses. And in a single tiny word, a single pronoun, Paul levels everyone. What are those who are in unrighteousness and sin in Romans? Uh, he spent three chapters making sure we were clear on that, didn't he? In ve- chapter 1, verse 18, he says, The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men all of us then if we have these trespasses are under the wrath of god and what is ours is worse than we think did you see the plural trespasses it's our trespasses that he was delivered up for and then that also shows why jesus being delivered up was necessary Because there had to be blood sacrifice. There had to be a propitiation made for our sins, for God to be both just 
which we want him to be, and the justifier, which we need him to be for us to have right standing with him. If there's no blood sacrifice, if there's no propitiation, there is no justification. There had to be a sacrifice. There had to be a substitute for us. And here's what Paul is making sure we know, that Jesus was delivered up for that. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He was delivered up as the substitutionary sacrifice. This idea is clear in our panorama. It was an idea that was still on the horizon for Abraham. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 22? The Lord told Abraham, you need to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and you need to sacrifice him. So Abraham, he starts moving in that direction. Can you imagine the thoughts? Can you imagine the, the turmoil within him as he takes Isaac and he starts moving towards the mountains to offer him up as a sacrifice to God? And they walk up the mountain. He puts him on the altar. He raises the knife to slaughter his only son. And God stops him. And what does he hear? Over in the thicket, something is rustling. Something catches their eyes. There's a ram caught there. God stops the sacrifice of Isaac and provides a sacrifice over here in this ram. He, he provides a substitute for Isaac, a substitutionary sacrifice for Isaac. I'm, I'm sure Isaac didn't miss this, that when they slaughtered that ram, that that ram died where I was going to die. There was a substitute provided by God, a sacrifice provided by God. And you know what? Abraham, as he thinks on that story and that moment, do you know what he wants people to know? I think he tells us what he wants, uh, wants us to know from that story. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 14, he names that place. He's like, I'm just going to call this place. This mountain is going to be God provides mountain. Because he provided a substitutionary sacrifice. He names that place the Lord will provide. And so the idea of this substitutionary sacrifice was on the horizon, but it progresses, doesn't it? In the book of Exodus, you have, uh, what do they say? Death is coming, and you're going to need to take blood, the blood of a lamb. You're going to need to put it over your doorpost. So slaughter the lamb, blood goes over your door. And what happens when you put the blood over the door? Death passes over. So we're progressing. We're learning some more. Then comes the day of atonement when they would, the, the sins of the people would be pronounced, confessed on this lamb. And they would slaughter the lamb and take the blood into the Holy of Holies so that they could meet with God and have atonement for their sin. And so we're progressing even further. Isaiah chapter 53 progresses us further. It says in chapter 53 verse 4, Surely the suffering servant, this servant of God, is going to, he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced. I love this. It's very similar to what we read in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep, we've gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Substitutionary sacrifice right there. In verse 10, who, who does this? In verse 10, it's the will of the Lord to put him to grief. God has handed up God in order to make a sacrifice for us, in order to be a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice for us. He was delivered up as this sacrifice. And so that is a necessary thing. Jesus steps into the world and John the Baptist looks at him and says, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
all that we heard, all that this has been pointing to, Genesis chapter 22 and the, the day of atonement and this, this time when the death passed over in Exodus, they're all pointing to this, where Jesus would step into this and be the final and full substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of his people. And that was necessary for those people to be justified before this just God. Jesus being delivered up is necessary, but if that were the end, friends, then we would still be, as according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, we would still be in our sins. Jesus being delivered up was necessary, but also necessarily tied to that is the end of verse 25 in Romans 4. That he was delivered up for our trespasses, and he was also raised for our justification. We need to see in verse 25 an unbroken unity. We need to see in the atonement and the resurrection an unbroken unity. These are meant to go together. The death and resurrection of Jesus are not meant to be separated. They go together. They can't be separated. If you separate them, here's what Paul says, we're still in our sins. If there's just a sacrifice, if there's just a death, then there is no justification. But Paul doesn't bring that kind of news. He says he was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification, and those go together. And yet they deal with different sides of the exchange, don't they? In the death of Jesus, Jesus receives, it wasn't his sins, he's the spotless lamb. He was put to death for our transgressions, for our sins, for our trespasses. He receives our trespasses, our transgressions, our sins. He's the propitiation the, the one who is himself in, in Romans, like he's the mercy seat where, where the sacrifice, the blood is put on the seat. Like he is that himself turning away the wrath of God that exists, that is directed at sinners. And so in the atonement, in his substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus receives our transgressions. But in the resurrection that he was raised up, Jesus is declared as the one who is vindicated, like God the Father is saying when he raises up the Son from the dead, that that the sins that he paid for have been paid in full, and Paul concludes from that, that that resurrection was the reason for and the justification of our righteousness. He says he was raised for our justification. Again, notice that little pronoun, our, such a small word. Little pronouns, our. They knock each one of us down, and then they pick us back up in this great exchange. He receives our transgressions. He receives death. He receives the wrath of God. We receive on the other side of it, because of his resurrection, we receive his righteousness. We receive his vindication. Our sins are paid in full through him. So that's the great exchange. He gets our transgressions. We get his righteousness. That's the best news in all the world. We don't work our way out of that. We have to have the exchange of it. And it only comes through Jesus. By faith, God counts our sins to be Christ, and he counts Christ's righteousness to be ours. So we're justified through Christ. He takes our wrath and removes our guilt, removes our sin in his death, and secures for us in his resurrection our justification. This means that our justification, our right standing, our acceptance, our belonging before God is as secure as Jesus is risen. And the scripture gives us this overwhelming weight of evidence that he is risen indeed. Charles Spurgeon said that that the dying Christ has purchased for our justification, but the risen Christ will see that we get it. 
The risen Christ has come to bring it to us. And herein we, we rest. And Christian, we should rest. The security, the comfort, the assurance that come by the realization of justification by faith, by the possession of faith, so beautiful, life-giving. It is unmatched. Now, I'm building off an idea that I read from D.A. Carson in one of his books, but let's consider a few different days here. Let's consider two days in the life of Abraham. Let's consider Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20, verse 2. Do you know what Abraham is doing? Father Abraham, man of faith, what's he doing in Genesis chapter 20, verse 2? He's giving up his wife. He's telling Abimelech that his wife is his sister. He's saying something that's not true, and he lets him take her. Right? This is the wife who he was promised chapters before. Your offspring's coming through her. So that if another is with her, that creates a problem with that, doesn't it? Abraham gives her up. And then let's fast forward to Genesis 22 that we already talked about. Where he hears the words of God to sacrifice his only son. And he moves in obedience to God. Now let me ask you this from those two days. Which day was faith, was Abraham's faith counted as righteousness to him? That was in Genesis chapter 15. He was counted righteous before the Father in Genesis 15. And so he's righteous before the Father in Genesis 20. He's righteous before the Father in Genesis chapter 22. Let's look at two days in the life of Peter. In Acts chapter 2, he, he receives the Spirit. And he boldly proclaims the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And that in his name, people should repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. These are people that he was scared of hours before. That he cowered before and denied Christ before the hours before. And now he's saying, Jesus is risen, you did it, and let's all repent of our sins and trust in him. Let's fast forward to Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. Where there another apostle has to confront Peter to his face. Because his life is out of step with the gospel. And let's ask again, on which day... Was Peter in right standing before God? Paul. He declares justification by faith in Antioch, Lystra, many places. And then in Acts chapter 15, he splits with Barnabas over this issue of John Mark. Maybe not his best episode. Which day was Paul justified? Take two days in your own life. Let's start with my life. I wake up and I slept in because I was tired. I just thought it'll be all right. You know, I'm tired. I can spend time with the Lord another time because I can be holy all day. So I don't need to get up and have this time with the Lord right now. But what it does is that even when I do get to sleep in, I don't get to sleep in because the reality of life is I have kids. I might want to sleep in. They don't care if I want to sleep in. And so I'm up early anyway and I get grumpy. Like, man going to sleep in. That was going to be a holy time of sleep instead of a holy time of prayer and time of the word. And they ruined it. So now here I am and I'm storming through the kitchen. You know, 
putting breakfast together, throwing it on the table. You guys aren't thankful for anything. Um, man, it might, I could have had a peaceful, calm morning, but you guys are here, you know, so now I'm just, you know, quick to, to be harsh and criticize, and, and it's reality sometimes, right? This is not a fake day. Barely say anything to my wife, and I head off to work. And here I come to work, and I think, you know what? I'm smart enough to handle this today. Time of prayer. We'll get to that eventually. But like, man, I'm just going gonna to think this one out. Right? And so I just go after it. Like, energy, strength. Like, I'm, I'm looking for it in me. And I go throughout my day, but everything's terrible, right? I pass a guy on the road that's broken down. I think uh, someone else will take care of it. Uh, I'm just, like, a guy comes into the office, wants to hear about Christ. I'm kind of like, well... You know, I don't know, maybe Jim's across the hall. Like, I've had a rough day. You don't even know the start of my day. I didn't even get to sleep in, all these things. And so it just ends up being a rough day. I go home. What do I do? I'm mean to my wife. And we just go to bed. Like, I'm glad this day is over. Maybe we'll try again tomorrow. Next day, I wake up, 3 in the morning. Ah, sweet multiple hours of prayer. Time in the Word. Oh, it speaks to me. I'm journaling. Don't journal most days, but, man, I've got pages praise is flowing from my heart to the Lord. My goodness, what did you show me in your word today? I've never understood Ezekiel. Now, all of a sudden, like, oh, man, what a, what a passage. Here I am. Oh, the kids wake up. I wrap them in a hug. You're loved and accepted here, no matter what you do in this family. Like, I've got breakfast I'm going to make for you. It's my joy to serve you. You know, greet my wife. You're the best wife in the world. I love you. Like, how can I encourage you and pray for you today? I go to work, and like, we're just, Jim and I are slam dunking around here. We're like, people are coming in, gospel's going out, you know, like, we're like, I mean, how can we strategize better to make sure we get the gospel to more people, that we equip and serve more people, things are going well, people are calling and saying like, uh, man, the, the word is changing my life, how can I get out there, and we're like, we've got three things for you to do right now, and we're sending people and things and all over, the, like, it's going great, I come home, we end our day with family worship, we all like, we read the word, we're broken by it, we repent together, we're crying, we're praying, then we're singing praises to God, and we end the day, and we Thank God, I'm so glad that you are with me today. What a great day. And I got to ask you at the end of this day, which day was I righteous before God? On which day was my justification more evident and clear? And the answer is, is that both days I'm justified by God. Think about your own life, two days of your own life, maybe the best, and maybe the worst. Whatever those days look like, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, your justification, your acceptance before God, your righteousness never shifted or wavered once. Because the ground of our justification, the foundation for our righteousness, is our faith in Jesus Christ, the one who was delivered up for us and raised up for us. It's not the performance of our day. It's not the purity or the strength or the intensity of our faith. It's not the works that we we're able to accomplish for the good of others. Our justification, our righteousness before God is grounded in, based upon, founded in faith alone, in Jesus alone. That's what justifies. There's a woman named Eliza Hewitt. She was a teacher for many years in Philadelphia. And she had a spinal problem that disabled her, made her an invalid. And though she was invalid, she was still able to write, and she wrote this hymn. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's called, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. 
She writes, My faith has found a resting place. From guilt, my soul is freed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. And here's the refrain. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Verse 2, enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. She knew, she knew, Jesus is enough. That he died and then he died for me is enough when I'm teaching, equipping kids, and telling them good things, or when I'm invalid, and all I can do is write out a few lines. May we know that too. Church, may we be people who have no theoretical commitment to the uh, idea and the doctrine of justification by faith alone, but may our faith find a resting place. And verse 25, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, assures us that our justification, our righteousness and right standing before God is as secure as Jesus is risen and he is risen indeed. May we know the security of that justification and may we breathe it in deeply and rest in our right standing before God not because of our performance, because of what Jesus performed, what he achieved on our behalf for us, even when our, and especially when our, performance is sketchy at best. May we live in the reality of justification by faith alone, not just on Sunday when we're singing a mighty fortress is our God with all of our, our faithful brothers and sisters. May we live in the reality of justification by faith alone. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We come in on Sunday, we take another deep breath again, we drink it in again, and then we go out being sent out again. And that each day we remember that our acceptance before God is sure because Jesus is risen. If you can't say... My faith has found a resting place. That I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and then he died for me. If you can't say that, would you let me invite you to place your faith in Jesus? Find a resting place for your faith. And if you can say it, let me invite you to say it again. To believe it again. To rest in it again. To live in it again. By faith, we can say together that our faith has found a resting place. By faith, we can say together, it's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Let's pray together. God, you know we've lived some ugly days. Many of us can tell stories about what life was like before we knew you. And we praise you for that. We're thankful for the change and the transformation. But we have to be honest and say we still have some pretty miserable days as compared to your example for us and the fruit that your Holy Spirit wants to bear in our lives. Some days we look pretty barren. 
and we look unchanged. What can we say to you but thank you? What can a prostitute say to a king who marries her and immediately changes her status in the world? That's who we are. We are spiritual prostitutes. And you have declared us clean, forgiven, your sons and daughters. We don't deserve to be in your family. We don't deserve that amazing status, but we have it. We trust you, Jesus, that your death is enough. And on the days when we forget that, bring our minds back to your death and your resurrection. Jesus, thank you for giving yourself to us. And thank you for preserving us and not permitting us to be snatched out of your hand until that day when you return to make us completely whole. When we're not just counted as righteous, but we are actually truly righteous indeed. And there is not a sinful desire left in our hearts. There's not a tear in our eye. There's not an ache or pain or disease in our body, Lord. That's what we are looking forward to. And it is all because of you. It is a gift from start to finish. And you complete things that you begin, God. So help us to trust in you and delight in you and uh, run back to the cross and the resurrection again and again and again. God, for anyone in this place who has not come to you at all, I pray that they would be compelled today by your Holy Spirit and as they see your amazing love for those who are so far beneath you, so corrupted, so sinful, and yet you give us all of this. Thank you for this great exchange, Jesus. Let us walk in confidence and in faith in you and your goodness today and tomorrow and the next day. In your name we pray. Amen.